Welcome to This Week in Surgery Centers. If you're in the ASC industry, then you're in the right place. Every week, we'll start the episode off by sharing an interesting conversation we had with our featured guest. And then we'll close the episode by recapping the latest news impacting surgery centers. We're excited to share with you what we have. So let's get started and see what the industry's been up to. Hi, everyone. Here's what you can expect on today's episode. Gwen Donathan is the clinical director at Roanoke Valley Center for Sight, and she's here to share how ASCs can use benchmarking to improve care and your bottom line. With four locations relatively spread out across Virginia, Gwen is off-site most of the time, so she really relies on benchmarking to keep her in the loop on what's going on at each of her locations. In our news recap, we'll cover five new technologies that are shaping the future of surgery, an app calling themselves Uber for Nurses, progressive treatments for depression, and a reminder for all healthcare workers after witnessing what happened to Damar Hamlin last week. Hope everyone enjoys the episode, and here's what's going on this week in surgery centers. Hi, Gwen. Happy New Year. Thanks for joining us today. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about your experience in the AOC industry? Absolutely. Uh, Thank you for having me. And I'm going to give you just a brief overview of things that I've learned related to the topic. But my experience in in the field is I became a registered nurse in 2004 and went to floor nursing, did that for a couple of years. And then just on a chance, I found out that nurses could work in ambulatory surgery centers. And there happened to be one close where I live. I didn't even know it was there, but it was an ophthalmic specialty ASC, uh, two ORs. And I applied and got the job and I've loved it ever since. I just like that kind of nursing. It's a little bit selfish because patients typically are experiencing positive outcomes as they're walking out the door. We've removed their cataract. They're able to see better immediately. And they're just very appreciative of that. And then seeing the high quality care that the organization gave to all the patients just really made it the place for me. Plus, the type of work is what I wanted to do as a nurse, OR setting, et cetera. I was on the floor for nine years in that two OR center. And then the opportunity came for me to become the clinical director. So I took that opportunity in 2016. They were in the middle of building their second ASC. It was going to be a one OR retina and oculoplastic center. So I jumped right into clinical director role, plus figuring out how to construct an ASC and get that running. And over the last six years, they've continued to build two more additional locations, one in Martinsville, Virginia, and one in Whitfield, Virginia. So we now currently have four ASCs up and running. It's been very rewarding, um, very challenging, but a lot of good people supporting and helping um, us work through that. So that's just been my experience with Roanoke Valley Center for Sight and the ASC industry in general. Well, thanks for sharing. Congratulations on the growth. It's always exciting to open new facilities and sounds like Roanoke Valley is is doing very well. Um, Can you give our listeners a sense of specialty mix 
And, you know, how many patients you guys see a month across your four, four center footprint? Yeah. So we are only ophthalmology and we do any kind of ophthalmology procedure that is safe to do in the ASD setting. Um, we do do some general anesthesia cases, but the majority of our cases are under MAC anesthesia or a little bit deeper sedation. And most of our procedures are cataract removal, but we also do everything from corneal transplants to, like I said, retina inoculoplastics. Um, we typically do about 1,200 patients a month. That's all four centers combined, and that tends to be about 14,000 a year. So it's quite a bit of procedures that we're able to do for our communities. Yeah, that's a lot of volume. Great. And so, Gwen, one of the things we wanted to talk with you about today, one of the things we're, we find ourselves talking about a lot at HST and talking to our customers about are these topics of data, benchmarking, and, and outcomes. Um, and we came across you in, in your article at ASC Focus all around benchmarking and some of the stuff that you've done at Roanoke Valley. And so we're excited to have you on to ask, ask a few questions about just that, which is the benchmarking side. And so can you tell us a little bit about the benchmarking efforts that you guys have done at Roanoke and, and how did you decide to prioritize that as something you guys spent time and energy on? Absolutely. Uh, I will tell you that when I first came on as clinical director, I had no idea what benchmarking was. I'm sure we touched on it in the leadership piece in nursing school, but had no idea what benchmarking was. And then I'm I had a seasoned mentor at another center kind of enlighten me <laughs> as to what this was and what it was for. And then just did some research to really find out the whys and hows. A lot of the accrediting organizations require that you benchmark mm -hmm. um, to be accredited because they know how important that it is for patient outcomes as well as your business model. As I started to learn about benchmarking and realizing the what a great tool that it was, we just have compounded on what was already established when I took over as clinical director and have added new either one-time studies or we have quite a bit of ongoing benchmarking that we review monthly and quarterly. And we report that to the governing body so the doctors know the pulse of what's going on. Uh, so just first of all, benchmarking, if anybody doesn't know, is it's an ongoing process where you are measuring your successes against your competitors and the market itself. And you can even break this down, which we do into internal benchmarking and external benchmarking. The external is comparing yourself to the industry and others in your field. Are we comparable to what everybody else is doing? Are there better ways to do things? Are we on par with the quality of our, of our performance? And then internal is, are we still on track with our goals uh, or are we slipping a little bit and we need to tweak that? So internal and external, external benchmarking is uh, very important. Never stop improving. The minute you think you have it all figured out, that's the time that you're going to get surprised with something. Um, so just don't get too cocky. Um, for our organization, benchmarking is a very important tool for the things that I just said. Plus, it I use it a lot to solve problems. A lot of times it'll come in the form of when we have our financial reporting. Okay, why are our why are these financials the way that they are in these areas? What's different? 
and or it can be outcomes or complaints. So a lot of times in our patient satisfaction surveys, if we're getting the same kind of complaint, we can hone in on that and benchmark to see what's going on, where do we wanna be, why are we not there, and choosing the data that you wanna to analyze to get you where you wanna be. It's really easy to lose perspective. Leaders, leaders in general, it's not just the healthcare industry, uh, they're overwhelmed by the day-to-day. -day. There's a lot of fires. There's a lot of perception. We think we're doing okay, but then we have either a yep. big incident or those financials are presented to the board and they want answers, or we have um, our clients or customers not happy. If you don't have a finger on the pulse of that, you can get surprised pretty quickly, and that is not a fun place to be. So benchmarking can really give you a long-term or short-term picture of, of how things are going in your organization. We, you're, uh, in the industry, if you have a specialty that you're either a member of a national organization like ASCA, or for us, it's, it's yeah. Goose, which is the outpatient ophthalmic surgery society they have benchmarking that they have their members complete and that really lets us see how we're all doing in that specialty so i really value that fantastic and and one of the things you touched on there which i like which is kind of the concept of hey what are we trying to improve what what are the problems right because it's usually if you're going to go through the, the time and effort it's good to stand with the start with the end in mind. And so I heard you say financial reporting. I heard you say patient outcomes and complaints. Um, did I get that right? Are those kind of the primary objectives you guys had with the program? In our organization, yes. And there are some others. Patient safety and infection are in there too. Yes, which can be yeah, financial yeah. in the end. Yeah. 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 Got it. And and for those three three buckets of financial reporting outcomes and patient safety are there some specific benchmarks you recommend within within those objectives uh, i think it one if you're an asc i think you definitely need to be benchmarking your infection rates your post-operative infection rates and you need yeah. to be benchmarking your efficiency the ambulatory surgery center what it offers to patients is huge it's more cost effective for patients it is more timely for patients, but it offers them the same high quality service that they may get in a hospital. But if you're not efficient with it, your case logs and the number of patients you're able to serve will quickly back up. Plus your financials will show that. If you're not doing your maximum amount of cases that you realistically could do in a surgery day, for instance, you need to figure out why. Why are patients waiting in the waiting room too long? Why is intake behind? Uh, are we delaying getting patients into the operating room in a timely manner? And that also translate, translates into decreased patient satisfaction if they're having to wait long periods of time when they got there on time. Um, so all of that will correlate together as a poor outcome. I, I like that. And so on the efficiency side, are you looking at things like cases per OR per day or OR, OR utilization and, and some metrics like that? Yes. Are cases starting on time? If they're, if they're posted at 2 p.m., did we start at 2 p.m.? We just did a study on 
for the very first case of the day because because I was getting some patient satisfaction surveys that were indicating that we had a problem in this area. Were we starting our first case on time, which kind of sets the tone for the rest of the day? One OR for a cataract room for us has 25 to 30 patients. If you don't start on time and then that continues to trickle even one minute late per case, you can easily run behind, which translates into patients waiting, higher staffing cost, um, and more money spent to do the same number of cases. So efficiency in are you starting on time? Are cases being completed roughly in the same amount of time? So are postings accurate? Should we lengthen how much time in between cases we're posting? Or is this really reasonable and there's some other reason why we're not meeting this start on time uh, metric? Sure. Got it. And so it sounds like you've got, you know, hey, here's the outcomes we're trying to drive. Here's some of the metrics and the the benchmarks that help us determine how we're doing on these outcomes or if you're on on plan or off plan. How do you, for the third piece, which is who you compare yourselves against externally, you mentioned the difference between internal and external. How do you determine those external centers that you benchmark yourself against? Through OOS and even um, our accrediting organization. When the members or the accredited other accredited centers submit their data, those organizations will send out reports. They don't give names, but they give, here's, here's how many centers we had participate in this benchmarking. Here's where everybody fell. And you'll get yours. Like I would see where Roanoke Valley Center for Sight fell and all of the other centers anonymously listed and how they fell. And then I can kind of see how we're performing compared to them. It's a real Got it. And- that they give, yeah. And I assume you also get some information in that reporting on number of rooms or procedure rooms the centers might have so you can make it as like for like as exactly. possible. Exactly. Like cases. That's great. Yeah. And, and you've also got four centers under your umbrella. So are you able, do you also look at benchmark against yourselves, you know, as, in terms of the different ASCs that are part of Rome? Absolutely. So three of our four centers have cataract rooms and we all the time are comparing one center with another. Got it. That's fantastic. Um, if you, if you step back and think about the ASC industry overall, and for folks that may just be, you know, starting their benchmarking programs or getting their head around benchmarking programs, what are some categories of benchmarks or metrics at a high level that you think people should consider? I think that they need to do the infection rate for sure on the clinical side and then pull in the financial team to participate in benchmarking of the financials. That can be everything from the efficiency piece to supply cost. Is there waste going out with our supplies and why? And then Something that I think is relevant, especially today, but it always has been relevant, is the staff turnover. You spend a lot of money on boarding Mm -hmm. new staff. Why are they not staying? And is your percentage of turnover higher than your competitors and why? I feel like once you can kind of get to the root of a high staff turnover rate, then you can start to create more effective teams and retain your staff more than you are. So I think that that's an important area right now. Yeah, it's certainly a good one. It seems to be top of mind with a bunch of our 
you know, customers and industry overall, which is staff retention, staff satisfaction, and and new hire acquisition. Um, so I'm sure you get some of those early warning signs by looking at the metrics, which is great. What about, um, you've kind of touched and laid out for us how you guys have thought about the benchmarks that you collect and what you hone in on. And once once you decide what you want to collect from a benchmarking and metric perspective at Roanoke, how have you gone about collecting and reporting out on the data? We will, once we've honed in on the goal, like what do we want to benchmark and what outcomes are we hoping to achieve? It's best to start simple. If you start collecting too much data, data you'll um, obscure the picture. So, because a lot of things correlate. So if we have a problem, let's just say, let's just say cases are not starting on time you would analyze the problem and think, okay, what are the couple of pieces of data that we really want to look at first? And sometimes your benchmarking will stack. So you may start out looking at a couple of metrics just to get, and if you don't see any issues there, you'll then go, okay, those are good, or they really weren't that bad. We were able to correct them. Let's move on to maybe these two other data points, and you start it all over again until you get to the root. So if it were cases are starting late, the first thing that we would brainstorm and then start collecting is what are our posted case times and what are our actual times? And that can mean what time did the surgeon show up at the center? What time did the staff pull the patient into the OR? What time was the cut time? So to start out, you want to look at just a few data points at a time and those that you feel will give the best picture of the process and hopefully show you what's going wrong. And that makes sense. And, and tactically, from kind of a systems or a data organization perspective, what do you guys use to gather that data? Is it your scheduling tool that you're using to say, hey, what when did we start? Like. Give, give us a sense of what systems you're using for this. So I would create a tool. It'll usually be a simple one page. Hopefully the staff won't hang me for it because I'm giving them. Something to do. <laughs> um, but sometimes I can pull data myself from what's already existing. But a lot of times I'll create a tool that has data lines, like what time did the surgeon sign off on cleared for surgery, which kind of indicates what time he or she showed up at the center. Then the staff need to understand, I want you to write what time wheels into the OR. I want you to write what, what time was the cut time. And then I want you to write what time wheels came out of the OR. So I'm involving my staff. I'm telling them, hey, we have a problem here. I need your help gathering some data. Here's the time period we're going to do it. So let's do it for two weeks. And fill in these lines. Do you have any questions? No, Gwen, we're good. And I tell them, send this to me every day. And as I get it, I'm starting to compile the data and starting to get a picture of how things are actually going. Once that laid out period is complete, that two weeks in this example, I'm going to compile all the data, summarize it, present it to the doctors, and then we all just look at it and go, okay, well, why is this this way? What happened here? Do you think this could be the problem? And then getting that feedback and either making corrections, because it's pretty clear what the problem is, or do we really not know and we need to go back and reevaluate? 
and you would just start the steps all over again until you got to where you wanted to be. Got it. That's helpful. So it sounds like you've got your teams filling out some specific informations and I'm kind of envisioning a, a schedule that they've got on the board or something, right? Or they're, they're kind of manually filling in the start times and you're serving that role of aggregation across the different rooms and different yep. facilities. Yep. Giving them the education of what I need from them and making the tools simple so that they can quickly just write in the data that I need and still get on with their day. Sure. Sure. And when you review this with, uh, with your board members and your physicians, do you guys have a regular cadence? Is this something you look at at your board meetings? Is this something you have a meet, a monthly meeting around? What, what does that cadence look like? If it's something that's really urgent or we really need to fix, fix ASAP, we'll call an emergency meeting to discuss. But a lot of times these things can wait till our quarterly meeting and uh, we present it there and talk about it as a group so that they can see how they want to go. Sometimes they'll send me back with follow-up right. questions or one additional data before they make any decisions. But uh, a lot of times it gives us really good stuff to work with. Sure. Okay. Um, so you've been doing this for a while and getting some traction. Um, can you give us a couple examples of decisions you guys have made? Maybe things that you've done differently or, or uh, things that you've decided not to do based on the benchmarking data? Yeah, there's there's been many times where we were able to quickly correct a pretty serious problem through benchmarking or create really significant policy changes that were just getting a lot of pushback. Um, two examples that I can give are our anesthesia providers were recommending a policy change. The surgeons were resisting it because they felt it would result in case cancellations and it came to a head where either we were going to need a resolution or one group or the other was not going to get along and we may not be able to hmm, yeah. so i was brought in to just listen to each party's concerns and i started a study on the incidence of how often would cases get canceled if we implemented what anesthesia wanted to do? So for a short period of time, we implemented the change as a trial. And then I had a one page tool, which thankfully my staff, they did a great job. I have a great team of staff, but it was a pretty involved tool that I made. And it gave me all the data about what they did and then the outcomes. So they did that on every patient for a specific period of time. I got all the tools back, which were, I think, I may have had 49 different patients that they did the tool on. I got it back, and then I created a spreadsheet with the data from each question or factual entry, and then compiled it to show this is how many patients we did the change on, this is how many patients ended up being canceled and then let them see those numbers. And it ended up being that the change anesthesia wanted to make did not result in any case cancellations at all. So we were able to get the doctors to vote, okay, we're satisfied. Let's make the policy change. Anesthesia, anesthesia has what they need. Doctors have what they need and we can all go about our day. 
but I was able to write that up as a study that would appease our annual study requirement from our AO. So that was kind of a secondary benefit. It was fun. It was fun to see what people think is going to happen, like doomsday, this is what's going to happen. And so then let's get in there and look at the numbers and the facts of it. And then here's your facts. Now let's make an educated decision. And that was really sad. Yeah, I love it. That's a great example. I think I think all of us can fall into this trap of doing things a certain way, and we don't like to change. Yeah. <laughs> and and maybe our our concerns or perceptions of change are, are sometimes apparently in this case different from the reality, right? Yeah. So I, I love that approach. Yeah, and since oh, you, I was just going to ask, since you've started uh, the benchmarking program, what what overall kind of high level outcomes have you realized? You, you mentioned at the beginning that you were doing it uh, for financial reporting around kind of outcomes and complaints and patient safety and inspections. Th- those were all, all problems. Have you been able to see outcomes and improvement levers across all three of those buckets? I think so. I think, I think that for me, the infection prevention is one of the most important things. It's safety for patients. It's decreased mm-hmm. risk and it's, it helps the financials as well because if a patient has an infection, there's a long path of treatments that they are going to have to undergo. And sometimes we would waive all of those fees because we want to just do right by the patient, even though infections are a part of having surgery. So when we are, we consistently benchmark infection rates, we have a program where it's steps that surgeons take and that I take to track infections, um, know about them quickly, go in a, and evaluate each one, and then see if there's a cor- correlation between um, infections, which you don't want as a cluster, because then that means there's something, either someone's consistently breaking technique or there's a sterilizer issue, et cetera. But I think for me, infection benchmarking is huge because it covers all the areas. Probably the other one is the financials, the 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 stat, the supply cost and the staffing cost. Yeah. All of which we constantly are keeping a finger on the pulse of. Yeah, that, that's a that's a great one, and I, I imagine we could have a whole hour long conversation on inventory and and staffing and implants and things of that that nature. But but that's Absolutely. a good one. Seems like there's a lot of opportunity there. Well, fantastic. So one one final question for you here, Gwen, and we do this with all of our guests each week is what's one improvement or one thing our listeners could do this week to improve their surgery centers? For me, and this is actually my 2023 goal, I would encourage them to strive for progress, not perfection. I think we can drive ourselves nuts trying to be perfect in all the multifaceted areas that ASCs are dealing with. And I think as long as you keep the goal of moving forward, always progressing, always looking for improvements, I think that you're doing exactly what you need to do. And don't be too hard on yourself if you're not as perfect as you want to be, because I don't think it's attainable. And that's what I would say. Perfect. Perfect is the enemy of good sometimes um, from my experience. So that's that's great. Gwen, thanks so much for, for joining us here this week. This has been a great podcast. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. 
As always, it has been a busy week in healthcare, so let's jump right in. Our first story today comes from e-magazine by Medical Expo, and they're sharing five of the top new technologies that they're thinking will shape the future of surgery in the years to come and give us a little insight into what we can expect. So the first piece of tech that they're sharing is is not that new, um, but robotics. So solutions around robot-assisted surgeries have been developing for years, um, and they're really just sharing that it's not slowing down anytime soon. Um, Just a few of the benefits include improved outcomes, less scarring, reduced errors, and reduced complications. Um, They also shared that it can increase the speed of training surgeons, which I'm not going to lie, gives me a little bit of pause as That is one area we don't want to cut corners on, but I can see what they mean um, in terms of of helping train healthcare professionals. Um, And I can also see how for patient outcomes, having robotics um, around can be an excellent addition to the OR. The second piece of tech that they're sharing is 3D printing. The goal here would be Um, to print custom created implants for each patient individually so that the implant fits better. Um, And 3D printing can also be used to make prosthetic, surgical instruments, and cutting guides. The third piece of technology is high-quality camera and imaging. Now, these techniques themselves have been around for over 100 years and hold essential roles before, during, and after surgery. But with the quality of the cameras now, they can actually help guide the surgeon during the procedure, enable much greater precision, and permit uh, live interaction between remote teams, which can be really important. So the next two is where we kind of start to get a little more futuristic um, in terms of what we're used to today. But the fourth one is augmented reality, also known as AR. Um, This technology takes patient images and other digital information and overlays it onto a patient during an operation to help guide the surgeon. So using a headset and real-time 3D views of the patient's anatomy, surgeons can better visualize the surgical site and make more informed decisions. That's the goal, at least. Um, And then the fifth option is virtual reality, and this is where Um, a person, healthcare professional, is taken into a virtual world. And the goal is to help provide surgeons and other professionals with training, allowing them to practice and develop school uh, skills, excuse me, without having to use animals or cadavers. Um, And it could also allow surgeons to plan and practice a procedure before they actually perform it on the patient, um, which sounds like a really cool uh, addition to the prepping process. Um, So those are the five new pieces of tech that we expect to continue to shape the future of surgery. Um, And I highly recommend checking out the photos in this article. They're really fascinating and will help to put um, more of these use cases behind some of the more abstract concepts that we have here. So if you head to the notes of this episode, you will find the link. Our second story, um, I'm really interested actually to hear if any of you have heard of or are using a new app called Hydrate, and it's spelled H-Y-D-R-E-I-G-H-T. And Hydrate calls themselves Uber for nurses, and it allows nurses, med spa techs, and other licensed healthcare professionals Um, this is what they share, to be in control of their own schedules and deliver services outside of a hospital or or traditional medical facility. 
uh, nurses use Hydrate's platform to offer services directly to patients, such as IV drips, Botox, COVID testing, um, and other medical and med spa treatments that are safe to give at a patient's home, hotel, office, or, or any suitable location. And currently, they said they have 688 accounts that provide medical services, and tens of thousands of patients have signed up. Now, it seems like um, like a, you could sign up as an individual nurse, um, or you can sign up as a facility or, or a company and have nurses under your um, that account as well. Um, now, I know the last thing ASCs need is another option that pulls their staff away from their surgery center and, and shifts, but I think it's important that we stay aware of these options as they pop up. Um, I would also love to know if you've tried it or if you know anybody who has, if you've been on the consumer side um, or on the medical or medic, medical side um, and just what your experience has been. So if you actually head to HSC Pathways LinkedIn profile, find this episode um, and leave a comment on the post to let us know if you've used it and what you think. Our third story today um, comes from NBC News, and they're sharing how ketamine clinics for mental health are popping up across the U.S. Um, In this one article that they cited, they kind of dove into this facility that's located in New York City called Field Trip Health. Um, And I'm just going to read to you from Field Field Trip Health's website what they share that they do. Um, They say they offer a holistic hybrid journey that blends ketamine therapy, meditation, and wellness support to help patients reach deep breakthroughs and heal the root of their pain. Um, Now, I know this isn't directly related to surgery centers, but one, I just thought, you know, as a consumer and as we're trying to stay on top of, of healthcare trends to see all that, you know, that these clinics are popping up. And then also just from, as a medical professional, what do you think um, of these clinics that are becoming more popular? Over the last few years, growing research has found that ketamine works for depression in some people. Um, So the FDA approved an inhaled version that one, must be administered in a doctor's office, and two, can only be used for people who have exhausted all other options. And patients are saying that these psychedelic experiences and treatments they received in these clinics have truly changed their lives, and they're able to overcome obstacles that they were never able to overcome before. Um, So again, I would love to hear your thoughts as a medical professional. Would you recommend it? Are you open to it? Have you heard any positive or negative stories? Do you have any concerns? Uh, Please let us know. I'd love to hear your thoughts. For our fourth and final story, I usually try to find a positive one to end the new segment on. Uh, But for today, I wanted to share a YouTube video I, I came across that was published by a YouTube account called Nurse Liz. Um, By now, you've likely heard about DeMar Hamlin, a football player for the Bills who tackled an opponent during a game recently. He quickly got up, but then collapsed to the ground, which we now know was due to cardiac arrest. Uh, Medical staff had to perform CPR right there on the field and use an AED on him in front of millions of people who were watching. Uh, So naturally, all the people who saw this were rightfully horrified. Um, You know, non-medical staff rarely see life-saving measures given 
in person. And obviously it was really traumatizing for his family, teammates, coaches, fans, um, so much so that they chose not to finish the game. And in Nurse Liz's video, she shares a great reminder to healthcare professionals that what you see on a weekly, sometimes daily basis can be extremely hard to process. And it's okay for you to feel that way and to feel overwhelmed after seeing um, really anything, but in this case, specifically life-saving measures given. Um, and while it may be the norm in this profession, it doesn't mean that you can necessarily build up a wall and pretend or, or think that it doesn't impact you. So just take care of yourselves. Um, and her whole message was, you know, there's no shame in admitting as a healthcare professional that seeing things like this does impact you because um, you're human and it should. Um, and I just wanted to also give a huge shout out to the medical team who kept Damar Hamlin alive on the field and did what they had to do, and also to his medical team who's taking care of him right now at the University of Cincinnati Medical Center uh, at the time of this recording. So I know that's not the usual uplifting story I like to share at the end, but I thought it was an important one. And that news story officially wraps up this week's podcast. Thank you, as always, for spending a few minutes of your week with us. Make sure to subscribe or leave a review on whichever platform you're listening from. I hope you have a great day and we'll see you again next week.